Hi, I'm Laura. Hey, I'm Stefan, and you're listening to Attributed, a podcast library by Dream Data. The purpose of it is to store and share all the knowledge that we have gathered across Dream Data employees through our LinkedIn Lives, podcasts, and webinars. The typical topics you'll find here can be stuff like marketing, sales, B2B ads, operations, social selling maybe. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon uh, to those of you who are joining from where Byron is sitting. Today, I'm speaking with my first ever uh, marketing professor, <laughs> despite being, uh, I've been practicing marketing for the last almost 15 years now, I've never been in touch with uh, an actual professor. And my answer has always been, well, it depends if I were to give an advice. And it's only within the last six months, I've actually discovered that somebody took the effort and actually did work to find out something that remains to be actually scientific true about marketing, Byron. So I'm very happy that you, you've said yes to join us today. It's lovely to be here. We're super honored that you decided to take your time here. But Byron, as I only discovered you uh, like within the last six months, and I've been going deep since then, but for those who've never heard about you or the Ehring Bass Institute, what is it that you guys have been doing the, the last many years? Or <laughs> why am I here? Why are you, why are you even interested in the Ehring Bass Institute? Because we do... Um... What we call old-fashioned science. We do the sort of science that out of high school. And that turned out to be quite a revolution in marketing. <laughs> That's not I the mean, worst uh, cliche. Not that, not that big. I mean, every single discipline. I mean, I, I think we could be quite complacent when I realize that every single discipline, our world around us has been utterly transformed in the last uh, few hundred years. And, and a huge part of that, you know, all the technology we use, we're using now, in part, owes its uh, existence to scientific discoveries. So probably not really, you know, we should never have been so arrogant in marketing to think that we couldn't, you know, science couldn't touch us. Um, yeah. We should have been I think you also, said... When you, you think know, about the amount of... Re- academics were, uh, you know, if you'd ask them something, they'd go, well, it depends. But yeah. They would, yeah, on what? <laughs> it depends is okay as an answer, but we should say on what? That's what scientific laws do. That's mm. what, what it does depend on and, and what it doesn't depend on. Yeah, and if you think about the amount of resources being poured into marketing across the world every single day, yeah. it's a massive use of resources all the time. But I read that you guys were the biggest institute of marketing. Is there is it not a big, can you say, area of science uh, marketing in general? No, when we say biggest, I mean, we're tiny compared to a Kantar or Nielsen, whatever, but they yeah. don't do scientific research. They do market research. They're collecting yeah, as yeah. you say, billions of, billions of dollars are spent every year by marketers collecting data on, you know, who are our customers, what do they yeah. buy, do they like us. So we never had a we never had a shortage of data, but we did have a shortage of scientists who would <laughs> look at that and go, well, I wonder if I can I wonder if I can find some scientific laws, some patterns that keep on repeating, because we've done that in other areas. You know, a few years ago we started doing that. Yeah, like killings and. Uh, that turned out really well. That really worked, right? And thus, prior to that, humans are really good at developing theories. But uh, 99.99% of every theory that has been put up to, you know, every story of why, you know, why is that mountain there? Why does why does water flow downhill? Uh, why are there different species? All of those theories turn out to be, you know, wrong. And uh, we only get onto the right track when we find scientific laws. And then, our, then that suddenly constrains us because our theories have to fit the laws. 
and it falls <laughs> they can't be right and um but that's what the Nuremberg gas industry does we discover you know some important scientific laws and then we beaver away and try to work out well, what does that mean then for practice you know what practice mm. because of that that's very that sounds very helpful and at least for me it's there's some of the things in the this how brains grow book that was uh but like simultaneously inspiring and provoking or like left me kind of disagreeing, <laughs> which is always like that when your brain starts working in that way, you know, it's a good piece of writing. But Byron, what have been some of, if you were to mention a few of these laws that you have discovered uh, by now that has been kind of, let's call them the most uh, famous or like the most impactful so far? Well, the most famous and that's a bit of a scientific geeky joke because i don't think any of these laws are famous is the is the double jeopardy law and it's a very classic scientific law in in the sense that is actually it's quite simple and it generalizes this, this that's that's what a scientific law is something that absolutely in fact i tell a little story we we used to have a when, for new marketing scientists people who are going to come and you know do a research degree with us hoping to discover things and things. We would, um, you know, we have a, a qualifying test and things. And one, one of that is presenting in front of the Institute. And we used to set a, a topic. And for ages, the topic was, you've got to present and tell us what's the difference between market research and marketing science. Uh, you know, people would do all these presentations. But uh, we had this really bright, uh, he's now a very eminent professor in New Zealand, Malcolm Wright, uh, who did his PhD with us. And he <laughs> said, you know, there's a one word answer. <laughs> and like, I went, okay, smarty pants, that's it sounds very that sounds very cool. We've never had anyone stand up and do a one word answer. What's yeah. the one word? Generalizability. Went, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah right. Because you know, market research report replies to, you know, like you ask, you know, how many subscribers does Netflix have or something mm -hmm. like that. And it's very it's very specific. You get a specific result and it applies for that day or that country. It doesn't tell you you can't use that in ten years' time. Mm -hmm. But I to the laws they repeat, they generalize. So yeah. they, I always joke that, you know, engineers, you know, say you're a, I don't know, Danish engineer and you get posted to Argentina, you never ask, well, what's Argentinian gravity like? The, the laws of physics are still the same. Yeah. Okay, so so you ask what's most famous and, and that is double jeopardy. And double jeopardy is, it generalizes, we see it everywhere, we see it B2B, B2C. We see it actually in quite... Bizarre places like in attitudes. Uh, in fact, that's where it was first observed. It's anywhere that people have to make a choice between competing things that that really are competing. I mean, they'll all do, right? They're all cars, right? or they're all payroll software, or you know, they. So you you're choosing between well, in marketing we would say brands, right? Mm. But um, and also apply for I'm choosing between TV stations to watch or comedies to listen to. And when, when people do this, you, you can think there are things that are more popular, more market share than others, right? Big brands, small brands. And so, you know, a basic marketing thing is, what's the difference between a big brand and a small brand? And yeah. prior to that, the theory was, well, because there are really two things that make up your sales in any time period. It's how many customers you have and then how much business they give you. And it was always thought, well, you could either have a lot of customers who gave you a little bit of business each, or you could have... A few customers who gave you a lot of business each, you know, you, you have any other combination of these. And mm. the double jeopardy law is like really mind blowing because it says, um, no, 
you always get the same. Right? You always get the same pattern, and that is the bigger brands will have a lot more customers. And they will also buy a little bit more of them. But if two brands, that, what that means is if two brands are the same size, they must have about the same number of customers. And those customers must have about the same amount of loyalty, right? The two brands would be. Mm. And so that is a big surprise because we used to think of, we used to love talking about niche brands. And niche is not supposed to be just another word for meaning small. Uh, you know, it, it meant you've got an unusually small customer base who are highly loyal. And um, Double Jeopardy says, well, uh, there can't be many of those because there'd be no Double Jeopardy pattern. And it turns out, um, yeah, when we look for niche, niched brands, they hardly ever exist. And when they are, they're not. They're not even terribly niched. So there's no such thing as a small brand having a huge customer base. There's no <laughs> thing as a big brand, you know, having a small customer. It just does not happen. And that leads to a whole lot of other things. There's like another law, the retention double jeopardy, which says your retention rate, your customer, how many customers you lose in a year is predictable. And that depends on how big are you. If you're really big, you'll obviously lose more customers because you've got more. You've got more. Yeah, yeah. But it'll be a slightly smaller percentage of your customer base. Have you done any research into why this, uh, or, or like the research on how should call it, the science shows the bigger brands see more loyalty, but what is the, the reasoning behind this? Oh, why does it occur? Well, I, yeah, have, that, I have a few ideas. Okay. Uh, we, this is where you build theory that has to fit the laws. So. Yeah. <laughs> The theory has been called um, availability theory or um, market-based asset theory. And, and the reason market-based asset theory is it, it says that, that really the difference between when you've got a group of competing brands and one is, say, much bigger than the others, yeah, it must have more mental and physical availability. So it's it's more available. It's yeah. easier to buy for more people. And that means it will have a lot more customers in any time period. And those customers will be a little bit more loyal. Or, or the way I like to point it is, for those customers, it's just a little bit harder to get away from. It's just so much easier <laughs> features. You know, whereas the really small brand, even the people who do know the really small brand, they're also likely to also know the bigger brands. Yeah. And so for them, yeah. they've got more. They've got more choice, and that gives you the double jeopardy. Right? Sometimes they buy that small brand, but they also sometimes buy the big brand. I was thinking if there's a, also a social component to it here along the lines of you never yep. get fired from buying ABM, IBM. Yeah, or... people have tried to sort of layer that on and, yeah. and I'm not disputing that, but it's not a big part of it. No. Uh, okay, that's very interesting. Because you, you know, if that was the case, you'd, you'd see really extreme double jeopardies in very sort of symbolic categories, etc., yeah. or very risky categories. And we don't. We don't okay, see that's interesting. Yeah, that was my, my go-to intuition. I'm not uh, saying that there might be nothing in that, but when you look at, this is the real world's a weird place. We come up with these theories and we think that, you know, but the, you've got to look at the real world. You've got to look at empirical laws to give us a sense of, well, how much is that in the mix? And the answer is, well, it might be there and it might be a bit more for some categories, but it's, it's not a big thing in it. It's a bit like people talk about Apple's ecosystem, you know, that if you, you know, they run on the same operating system, if you buy one Apple product, it makes it easier to buy another one. Yeah. You know, oh, that must give Apple, you know, much, much higher loyalty. But when we look at it, because we now know it should have higher loyalty because Apple's a very big brand. <laughs> Doesn't get much bigger. 
we don't see much beyond that, right? So the, the real reason that Apple's got high loyalty is because it's got lots of mental and physical availability yeah. uh, to buy for lots of people. And then you go, but, but what about the ecosystem locking them in? And the answer is, um, it might be a little bit of teeny, yeah. <laughs> teeny bit on top, but it's, yeah. it's not actually a huge part of the thing. Yeah, Byron, for those students who haven't studied the physical and mental availability, in, like, in, in simple terms, how would you explain this to them? Okay, first of all, um, I think I'll start with the easy one. I think, I think there's still some people who get confused. Physical availability is just the ease of the product or services for people to buy. So that, that does vary um, in different categories. So for, for some things, it'll be that you know, you've got, they've got an app on their phone mm. or, or that you can pay for using PayPal or um, you know, another will be they've got a, they've got a, a car park near me. Mm. You know, it depends. You know, if I'm driving there, then the car park becomes important. Uh, if I'm going to like the order of the taxi or Uber on an app, then having the app on my phone and connect to my credit card is important. These are just all ways that you make it easier for people to buy you. And bigger brands have a lot more of that physical availability. McDonald's is a lovely example, right? In most yeah, Western countries, you walk too far and you can find a McDonald's. Yeah. And they're open a lot of them 24 hours. So yeah, or do you see the same kind of brands in the supermarket where you 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 go? Yeah, so big brands have a lot more physical availability, and, and particularly there is a there are some other laws uh, relate to this. But uh, big brands get physical availability in places that are not just like supermarkets where there's lots of other brands. They'll also be in places where there aren't many other brands, like a vending machine. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. And that that. All those places aren't big volume compared to a Walmart or mm. Aldi or something. They have that special thing that you're, you don't have a lot of other competition there. Yeah, so it's quite nice. Okay, so that's the physical availability, which is just ease of purchase for people. But then there's mental availability. And um, my colleague Jenny Romnick likes to say that you know, the biggest search engine in the world is between people's ears. And a classic example of this is going into a pharmacy or a wine store or a supermarket. Yeah, you, you buy a few things, and but there's tens of thousands of options looking at you. And, and what, what we are amazingly good at doing is screening out. We just don't see most stuff yeah. because we have a thing that we want, the brands, which is like the brands we know. And so that's mental availability that the brands, in it, when someone's about to potentially buy the category, for a lot of people, it's really easy to think of or see, notice, right? it doesn't get screened out. It doesn't get, you know, like, why did you not buy that? Well, I didn't think of it. I didn't, I didn't even see one. Is it because people only carry around one brand per category or, or something like no, that? No, no, no. You know, people, have, people have repertoires, they have multiple brands, but you don't hold all the brands. No. I, I, it's a lovely, to, if, you, if you say to someone, if you just uh, like a little experiment. You say to someone, "You've got to." I'm going to ask you a question. You've got to answer really, 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 really quickly. Okay, fast as you can. Right? How many car brands are there? And a lot of people go, "Uh, seven. Yeah. <laughs> and there's more than seven. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. The eighty, ninety that you could like go into town and buy now. Why would you say seven? And the answer is because they think they quickly think of a few. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There's got to be more than that. Like, so they think of three. There's got to be more than that. So I'll say six. Yeah. But what it shows, it's impossible for us to think of all the options. There are um, 
I had some students doing a presentation on, only yesterday. I think they were looking at financial services, you know, for banks, really big. Yeah. yeah. And there's something like mm -hmm. 70 something banks in Australia, actual wow. performance with a license. And then there's hundreds of thousands of other, you know, brokers and finance. Yeah. Something like, whoa. But in Australia, so there's 70 banks, but there's four, which we call the big four, and, yeah. and for a good reason, they, those four have something like 80% of the banking market. So they they have, and they have tons of mental and physical availability. Yeah, Whereas this um, sunshine coating doesn't. Yeah, I would love to ask you how kind of these mental and physical availability. So, say you you started in uh, in my job, uh, a fifty people uh, software company. How do you then um, translate these general laws into kind of a playbook or a a strategy? How would you? start to translate what you've found to be true in science to kind of just your okay. marketing. <laughs> there's no, there's no simple answer for that. And that's why no. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Well, it requires creativity, uh, imagination, and also a deep understanding. So um, let me do a plug now for see how brands grow for executives up there. That, that's, that's a four day doing Singapore and Europe. But oh, nice. And that's exactly what people come to. You know, I think everyone who comes to the course will agree at how brands grow. But what they're doing is going, well, but I, I know of it. Mm. I get it. So, you know, I, I get it, but I don't. Spoon feed it to us, Byron. But <laughs> I, I think it so deeply that when, I'm, when I encounter a, a new novel thing or I'm choosing between two potential strategies that, that I can work out what actually really would fit, the, with what would the laws, how would, I use them to to make their decisions. Mm. So uh, so we're always, but but as I say, it requires deep understanding. Um, it requires creativity and imagination. Let me give you one of the most simple because you're a B two. I'm B two B marketer too, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, in fact, this this how brands go for executives is the very first thing we've ever done where where mm. an individual buy from us. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah. Normally, corporations join. As yeah. a spot permission you know, study of their distinctive assets or something. So we are a B to B, and um, so as a little bit, bit what, what do you? You're, all right, we've got to have more mental and physical availability. So we have to work on being famous and doing mm. things like podcasts, yeah, all the time, because there's seven billion people on the planet. There are people, new people joining marketing every single day. There are <laughs> tens of thousands of universities. I mean, yeah. yeah pumping out graduates and they're teaching them the wrong thing. They're, they're not teaching them this, right? So you've got all these people who are, so it's enormous. So we have to constantly work at building fame for the discoveries, the laws. And then, yes, we have to be more physically available. So we, you know, we're based in Adelaide, Australia. Uh, so we send people on planes a lot. Yeah. Because we're a professional service thing. People mm. quite, I mean, things like this are great. Hundreds of people can, hello. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, we need more than that. And um, so it is the same thing. I think I, th I realized some years ago, I thought, I was, um, you know, we have more PhDs on staff than, in, you know, than way more than even a giant like Nielsen. Right? Mm. Like, so, you know, you said, uh, we, should, we should tell people this. Everyone should, like, and I thought, that's not really the issue. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone thinks that Nielsen or their market research provider is sort of uh, unqualified. Mm. No, the Uruguay Bass's problem, being a small brand, is um, not many people know us or think of us. Yeah. If you're a company like Kraft, 
you'll probably have several Nielsen people who actually work in your offices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, 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 but they're there. They're there, like not 24 hours a day, but they're there, you know, five days a week. Wow, that's really, that's that's availability. So we have to think of clever ways of improving ways be tiny, <laughs> but we have to think of ways of making that just a little bit easier. And so for you, for something that's exactly the same, you're up against, I presume, things so that the Microsofts and things who have. Yeah, Adobe has stuff as well. Adobe, yeah, who have tens of thousands, I'm thinking of salespeople who are visiting. Um, so the, yeah, maybe one thing is then, the practical a practical question always becomes i only have this marketing budget so i know i need to radically increase the awareness about us yes with this physical uh, and mental availability but how do i then with the limited budget i have then choose between the the different options that that oh, i can go for well so let's think of that double jeopardy right so double jeopardy says you can't grow without increasing penetration you cannot grow without increasing the size of your customer base Although I've had, I've heard CEOs say this. Like, uh, in fact, uh, you know, speaking of Australian banks, there was a CEO of a very large Australian bank who said, "We don't need any more customers. We can grow the business by getting more." And I know you can't. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry if you stop trying to acquire customers, you're going to start shrinking because you know every day you're going to lose customers. Yeah, people die. Die exactly. So it's not optional, right? So when you know it's not optional. Then you're looking at, okay, how do I spend my budget? And you look at everything and you go, well, how much reach is this going to give me? If so, I've got two options. One will give me twice the reach of the other one. Well, I like the one that gives me twice the reach. Mm. I, like the, I like the option also that's reaching people that we don't reach at the moment because it's really easy. You know, we, we get someone as a customer, we get their name, we get their email. You know, now we can email them. Great. But how do I reach people who don't have their email? Yeah. And so the, the Double Jeopardy tells you, you don't have the luxury of saying, oh, it's okay, I'll just deal with the people I've got. You, you must gain reach. And so that that does tell you a lot. Um, do you remember in the days when, when Facebook started and yeah. it was really, uh, you know, key, all brands were like, you know, we've got to get people to like us and help yeah. our, our um, what were they called? Were they called friends, I think? Yeah, they're called yeah friends on Facebook and connections on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, and so this was a you know, and then once people got their heads around double jeopardy, and went oh they've got to increase penetration. And, well, wait on, uh, these Facebook friends, it's gonna be the we're gonna be talking to the same people over and over, isn't it? Mm. And who's gonna who's gonna befriend a brand? Who's gonna click like my brand? It's gonna be our heaviest buyers, isn't it? Yeah. So actually, this is not this is not a great you know just trying to work through our friend that that's. We're just going to be people that for us are, are the easiest people to reach. Yeah. They're the people who already notice us all, already. Mm. And uh, this was a big shock to the industry but uh, and, and, and then Facebook too, first of all. But then they realized, yeah, actually, the, you, what you need to do is spend money on Facebook to advertise and mm. reach out your friends. Yeah, then you can select new friends. <laughs> but Brian, you said the concept of reach. But it, tells, it tells you that some, yeah. some strategies just are doomed. So you said you reach, do you mean when you, do you assume that it's qualified reach then, or is it just broad reach uh, in, in like a better term? Well, it's, it's reaching people who, who can possibly buy from. Yeah. You know, you know I always, always the joke, you know, you, you don't sell sales to people who don't have a yacht. No, no, absolutely not. But that's often broader than you. You'd be surprised, um, you know, or a company today is too small to buy your software, one day be bigger. 
So, you know. Okay, I will. They will one day be an adult, you know, like our markets do seem a lot broader than we think they are. Yeah. I'll ask one last question and then we're being bombarded with, uh, with other questions. So I'll take that. How do you typically think about return on investment in the, in this kind of when now oh. you selected a bet and then you put in some money? What is the, like general rule of thumbs that you go by? You got to be really careful. Accountability, fine. I try to work out what's working, but um, you have to be very careful with ROI is a terrible metric. Um, <laughs> Tell me why. The highest ROI you get for an advertising budget is to spend like only one dollar. As soon as you spend a second dollar, your ROI starts going down. Yeah. If you're owner of a company or investor in a company or the chief financial officer, you do not care about marketing ROI. It's like, like you know, like, wow, you got great ROI. I don't care about that. I, how much money have you made me? I don't care. Because the problem with ROI is it really encourages you to do smaller, more targeted, more It's an efficiency measure, right? Mm. But shareholders don't care. Like, particularly if you're a startup and things, Say you're a uh, you know a IT startup. You've been given yeah. some venture. Venture capitalists do not care about efficiency. They're like, well, I've given you money so that you can get big. Yeah. Now get on and get big. I don't care. <laughs> I don't be small and efficient. I can give you money for that. Like I mean, I've got other safer options. I do that. You must, you must grow, right? I want you to grow, grow, grow. And so you know we've got to be, we've got to realize that. And and also there are, there are some things. Physical availability, you can look at with a sort of a, you can, an ROI sort of perspective. There are certain points where if you invest in an extra shelf space or something like this, you just stop getting returns. Mm. You point off. And so you should do that. You should, you should optimize. So you're basically saying, look at the revenue at the end of the day rather than mm. like... Oh, yeah. 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 Efficiency is all very well, but it doesn't pay bills. No. <laughs> Sales do. Yeah. Sales and profits, right? And so if Apple wanted to stay efficient, it would not, I mean, they'd not, you know, the latest, the Vision Pro they've launched. That's probably cost them so much money in R&D and uh, it's going to be a small product for a while. They hope it will be big and it'll be the future. So they're not thinking about ROI. I mean, they often actually, in their financial report, they go, you know, why is our, why is our net margin gone down? Oh, because we launched new products. That's okay. We don't care about our market scheme now we launch new products well, as long as they are the future. ROI is an anti-future uh, metric, so you've got to be very careful with it. Uh, I, I think <laughs> ROI is an anti-future metric. That's it, an idiot. Yeah. I have a little thing in the university textbook and the section is called ROI can send you broke. That's great. Uh, so, so Christian probably asked pretty much the same as I did here. How should small businesses apply the scientifics of uh, scientific laws of marketing for optimum results as long as they don't do not have big budgets for marketing? No one has big budgets for marketing. Show me anyone who has big budgets for marketing. <laughs> I always joke that when I when I visit Coca Cola in Atlanta, they moan about their limited budgets. Say you say you're given the job, you're brand manager for Coca Cola. You look at your sales target for next month. It's huge. It's enormous, right? So uh, there's nothing, you know, everyone has limited budget. So it's the same thing. We need to use creativity and imagination to reach our category buyers, to reach particularly our light category buyers, people who don't know us about us or are mostly buying other brands. That's certainly what the law of double jeopardy tells us. So Uh, same if you're big or small. I think it's even more stark if you're a new brand or a small brand. 
you just know you've got to acquire more customers. You've got to increase mental and physical availability. Yeah. The people who get it wrong are people who actually are, are in charge of some really, really big brands. I've had people say to me, well, we've got 100% physical availability. And I'm like, well, mm. <laughs> oh, I can just buy you by the blink of an eyelid. And I'm like, oh, no, you have to go to the store. I'm like, well, right, well, if Coca-Cola thought that they had 100% physical availability by getting into the supermarkets, they would never have launched vending machines and, you know, so... I think big brands, I think for small brands, you should get it, right? You've got to increase mental and physical availability. Some big brands get quite complacent. Or they say, our market research provider says we've got 100% mental availability. Yeah. Which that always makes me laugh. It's like, <laughs> really? So yeah. people think of nothing else but you. Uh, I, I don't think that's even, Taylor, even Taylor Swift does not have. <laughs> it's <laughs> getting there. <laughs> but uh, and what I'm hearing you, Byron, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like if if to be tactical here, it's about mapping out as many possible ways to reach your a qualified audience, and then selecting where the ones that presents the let's call it most affordable option to reach as many qualified buyers uh, as totally possible. Yeah. So if you're B to B, so you're B to B, I'm B to B, yeah. then you're probably you're probably going to be using things like LinkedIn, right? But you're probably not so much going to be using TikTok. Yeah. You're not going to be using TV because uh, you know, it reaches too many everyday consumers. You apply the laws with your creative understanding of your industry. Okay. I'll have so many to choose between. I'll, I'll go with one here, uh, Byron. So Dennis uh, saying, what advice would you give to a new B2B service company when starting with building mental availability? Where should he start? Well, uh, I, I, there's, you, get, you have a lot of options. Um, usually you'll think of some, some and the great thing is when you start, in many ways, some things are easier. There are some, you know, simple options that you can do. Like, like if you, you know, a store, like if a store, you open a physical store, right? Like I've got a few hundred meters from me, a new gelati place is opened. The most obvious thing to do is realize you can get quite a lot of custom originally from, from people who live within walking distance. So why don't they go and just walk around and put a you know leaflet into their letterbox for all the people within walking distance? Right? Yeah. So when you start, there are, there are usually some things that you can think of like you know that are easy to do. But but another thing, and this is this applies all the time, is to, is you know great creative ideas that get publicity to get your attention because that is the thing you're battling for first of all no one knows you so you know Richard Branson of the Virgin Group he was brilliant at doing this I remember a time when his company Virgin Airlines had been in dispute with Sydney Airport and they resolved the dispute I, I don't know what it was about you know yeah. so lawyers, lawyers would have been involved and they would have you know signed a contract and a normal business you know that's what someone would have done you know let the lawyers and they sign the contract and that's it and maybe there's an announcement to the business press no, no, no. Richard Branson got on one of his planes and he dressed up in an American Red Indian full, you know, feathered headset thing <laughs> and he arrived at Sydney Airport to smoke the peace pipe. <laughs> now, you know, of course, you know, he got massive coverage, all the, you know, TVs there. You know, that that's cost him so little and gave him so much, you know, yeah. he's got primetime TV coverage. That's fantastic. You know, so, so creativity uh, matters enormously, and I think when we're when we're small, we can take quite a lot of risks and and, and try to do you know like what do you have to lose? Yeah, like, 
no one knows no one knows us yeah do something so they're gonna see us yeah so like the practical advice would be write down who are the people that we need to reach and then figure out all the different methods that you can choose between to reach mental availability and since you're new um dennis well, you don't have a lot of money, so some of the options you'll have to put in the drawer until uh, you get a bit so be, more. Be aware of doing things just because you think other people should do it. So you see things like a new store open and they go, oh, we need to have a loyalty program. And you're like, what? Why? Why? Do... Well, other, other, other coffee shops have all got a loyalty program. Yeah. Does that mean, <laughs> dude, really? Like, that, is that your problem? Uh, no, it isn't. You haven't got enough customers. That's the problem. Yeah. Byron, I think I know the answer to this, uh, but I'll just raise it uh, anyway. How does these laws change when it's uh, either B2B business and not the Coca-Cola, et cetera, uh, well, of this world? Well, if you go to the Ehrenberg Bass website, or if you Google Ehrenberg Bass, there's a uh, big public report you can get looking at B2B, right? Looking at them. They apply to B2B. So that's probably a better answer now. But we have actually been surprised that there is actually, you know, there's a lot in common. It's a lot in common. Okay, B2B will tend to use more salespeople than B2C. Although, you know, B2C has, well, of course they have salespeople because they have a B2B part in them as well, right? If you're the, if you work for Nestle and you, you know, you have to look after the retailer, well, then you're in a B2B business. So unsurprisingly, there's a lot of commonality. I think one of the things that people thought was different about B2B is that they thought that the buyers would be less habitual right because we we really show in um if you if you read how brands grow you really do get an impression that consumers are sort of they're naturally loyal because they like to be habitual mm. they like back and buying the brands they buy and and there's a sort of feeling that in b2b that would be different but it's not <laughs> i you know most of the time when people go for a b2b a contract or something that they, they immediately think of you know two potential providers and then you ask them have you used those providers before yeah or yeah. if it's like wow that's that's loyalty right you really are quite habitual still it's the same way the consumers when they go i need you know a new fridge or something they only think of a few of the brands they could yeah. okay there's so many questions I'm, I'm trying to pick out some good <laughs> ones here uh you can always connect to me on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. And I think also some of them we can't demand you to be an expert of. But here's one. Byron, why do you think marketers are so focused on reaching specifically young audiences? Is there anything here to debunk? Yes and no. Um, yeah, when we look at the profiles of, of brands, when brands grow, they draw from all demographics, right? So you've, you've, you know, you've got to reach all your category buyers. And so if your brand skews young, you'll, there'll be more young people. But, the, you know, if, you're, if your brand, like you know, most brands are young and old people and, and, and you, you can't sleep with that. But we have published a report for sponsors that does show there is a little bit for new brands. It's a little bit of a skew towards, uh, a little bit of a skew towards young people. And that's because they make up, they're slightly more likely to be entering the category for the first time. And so, right. you know, you, you want to get your fair share of those people who are entering the category. Yeah. And so there is, you could argue there's a strategic thing of, you know, <laughs> grabbing, grabbing people when they're, when they're just looking around, right? When they're, they, it's their first personal loan. Do you think and, they're uh, more likely to be also like sharing everything on social media once they like, become impressed by something uh, as well? Not, it's not a young, it's not a thing that's particularly about young, but new buyers, yes. 
Um, so this is another discovery, a reverse. Who gives you the most word of mouth? It's your new customers. Yeah. Why? Because you're new. Mm. You're interesting, right? There's Someone who's taken out your, your software, right? That, that's the person who can give word of mouth and you should try to encourage them. And, yeah. But someone who's been your customer for 10 years, whatever, they're not talking about you anymore. <laughs> We've been using the same product for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, old news, right? I mean, if they're talking to their friends about the software that they've been using for 10 years, they're going to lose all their friends. Yeah. <laughs> Byron, here's, a, here's a, a different angle. Do you think there's such a thing as bad press? Is any oh. mental availability better than no? It's a good question. Um, yeah, there's a lot to that, that old, uh, what is that? <laughs> old adage, um, all publicity is good publicity as long as they spell your name right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not entirely daft. I, I mean, I'm not, of course you can get some bad publicity, but, but I'm thinking, of, you know, product poisonings and things like that, you know, it could be bad. But well, on that, do you, I mean, I don't know, what's it, 20 years ago, Tylenol, there, were, there was someone who was, who was poisoning Tylenol captures in America and then they, yeah. they this person did kill people before they caught him and put him in jail you know killed people um and so you think oh my god you know that would have just killed Tylenol but no it's one of the biggest brands for you know painkillers in America still so it shows it, it takes a lot uh of, in, in the main I think we as marketers and and CEOs and things like that are probably yeah. uh, overly sensitive to bad publicity but the, the, what's worse than bad publicity? Yeah, no. Publicity. Yeah. Like, I mean, like you've been saying cigarettes are bad for years and years, but just the mention of a cigarette, those that are kind of just stopped or like that would remind them, oh, there is a cigarette, so I'll, I'll go down and buy a cigarette. But I don't think Microsoft has had much in the way of good publicity for the last sort of decade, have they, really? I mean... They're doing just fine. But they're, yeah, they're like... <laughs> the biggest companies in the world. It's quite interesting how many uh, fairly bland brands do very well. You know, like Toyota, the two biggest car companies in the world are Toyota and Volkswagen. I mean, they're not, they're amazingly bland, aren't they, really? I'm not yeah, that yeah. I'm happy bland because that doesn't help to get attention, but it, it does show that the, what people say, like people say, I, I want an exciting yeah. car, et cetera. It's going to, you know, communicate my personality, etc. No, in the end of the day, they they're yeah. more uh, practical. I guess what they've nailed is the physical availability. Oh, absolutely. people can afford it. It's nearby. You can go there and buy a car of a Toyota brand. They've made sure they have the models that people want. Yeah, they've launched so many duds. They've not got distracted. They've made, you know, keep working it. Every day at mental and physical availability, make us easy to buy. Don't have someone coming to the dealership and go, have you got that type of car? And I was going, oh, no, we don't. We don't do that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not easy doing that. No, no, it's very expensive as well. Well, but no, but you could argue that, you know, their competitors have made more expensive mistakes of, you know, launching car models that they thought were good or flash and different. That's not what people... All right. So if we jump back into the world of, uh, of B2B, are you familiar with what's called account-based marketing? I presume this is like, you know, where you have... Uh, you select a list of 100 accounts or something like that. Yep. Um, how do you feel about that as a tactic? Uh, like selecting a super small group and then just betting big on this small group, becoming very interested in your product 
as opposed to the very broad reach uh, that you talked about earlier. You need to crunch the numbers and be realistic about how many of that small group you're really going to get. So um, look, it happens in B2C and it happens in B2B too. People, people tend to narrow their targets too much. I think I'm a, I'm one of those as well. <laughs> well, before I read your book, I was one of those as well. It just makes it yeah really really hard to you know you've got competitors and it's very hard that you know you pick a hundred accounts and going to go go for those. Well, it's really, you're not going to get all hundred. And if you're if you don't have some mass activity, you're not going to get the serendipity sales. Of people who you know you weren't even trying, but suddenly they come and buy from you because they've heard from you. I will say. Um, particular thing on the account management, what I think the mental and physical availability story tells us for salespeople is that we probably spent too much time in the past thinking about, you know, trying to have highly persuasive salespeople. I mean, that, I mean that's good. We want really well-trained salespeople, et cetera. But the biggest difference between, you know, two sales teams, which one's going to be the most effective is the, the, the one that talks to more customers. So we should really focus on uh, things to make it make our salespeople more productive. That we don't waste their time, you know, filling in reports and uh, you know, doing stuff inside the company. The sales team that spends more time with more customers is is going to win. So maybe can I can ask you this question then? So in the, if you have a choice of, uh, <laughs> let's say that it's qualified reach, would you rather have the frequency of ten with a hundred, or a frequency of one with a, a thousand? One with a thousand. Okay, and why is that, Byron? Ah, uh, because that's what the, sorry, that's what um, research from all sorts of different disciplines, right? Yeah, absolutely. Childhood learning theory to uh, experiments in labs, through to you know looking at TV and print and things like that shows the first exposure that you get in a in any time period, a limited time period, mm. uh, way more than the second one. So. Much rather hit two, you know, this week I'd rather my sales team spent, you know, one hour with two customers each with two customers than two hours with one customer. That's super interesting because I think a lot of the notion in, in the B2B marketing world where I live is this kind of extreme high frequency amongst the, a selected group. It is in B2B too. Like you watch TV tonight and you'll see the same ad multiple times. Yeah. And then if you watch in a month's time, you won't see that ad. That's nuts. Uh, so they do it B to C too. Absolutely. Um, so here's last my co-founder. Let's see what she's asking. In software as a service, we often see requirements to talk to salespeople to see the product or get a price. How do you see the, that relative to the laws of availability? So I don't understand. Are you oh, you you make it a little bit hard for people to find out your prices and things. Yeah, but like I think that? both uh, to act see the actual product and also to know the actual price is yeah. that counterproductive yeah you've got to be careful with it it's a bit like um with supermarkets you know some supermarkets used to have this idea of a well you know a lot of people coming in for say milk or bananas or something we'll we'll make them hard to we'll put them at the back so people can have to you know see the other stuff on their way through stores like that are less popular right it's mm. what they're Forgetting is that a lot of their customers need to do things quickly. And uh, if you, you start putting out barriers to people, years ago, remember when newspapers had uh, classified ads and things like that? that uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you didn't put a price on it, if you said something like ring to get the price, your response rate is so much lower. 
So, you know, I understand you're trying to temper and get this out, but but be very careful with that. I guess people are like thinking that the likelihood of them getting the contract signed is larger because they get the salesperson in front of the customer as opposed yeah. to letting the customer view a video and see the pricing and stuff like that. I think those are two separate issues. You know, one, you know, one make it as easy as possible for the customers. Do that. Right? Mm. Then the other thing is, uh, yeah, work out how to get your salespeople in front of people. Those are, those are two different things. Don't conflate that. If you put those two together, you, you can shoot yourself in the foot. There's been a Bunch of questions on this, so I'll let you answer that as well. Do your laws only apply to a world of uh, physical marketing, or do they translate to internet online marketing as well? I mean, I, I, it doesn't take much imagination to no, no. Into the digital world. Although, you know, I say this, not everyone has imagination. No, but I, I tell a funny story. I was, uh, I was in a country with a, uh, a very famous brand of car sharing you know and uh i said um so how many people have got the app on their phone and they went um i can get that for you we've got that figure somewhere i went well, what do you mean it should be like everyone who walks into the office there should be like a neon light that tells you what percentage of people in this country have got your app on their phone because that for you is your physical availability no one is going to call the car if mm. they don't app on the phone Amazing, yeah. Oh, and have you just seen uh, this Uber? You can now call an Uber. They've, they've launched a phone number for people who don't have the app on their phone. They can call Ooh. it like old-fashioned way, which was generally, you know, this is probably they've realized there are some probably older people, right, who don't have smartphones. Don't do they have read your book, Byron. <laughs> yeah, they're, that's. I think that's clever. You know, like whatever. Yeah. You know, uh, you want to call us by the phone? You can do that. That's okay. Okay, uh, so we're almost out of time. So I'll do one or two more questions and then I'll, I'll let you do the, the final yeah. one. Your work is often challenged, long-held marketing beliefs. Your, uh, your work has, of, of, uh, are there any of the recent trends or practices in marketing that you believe that are uh, particularly misguided or overhyped? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, they're always popping up. Um, and I think... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think under COVID, maybe because it was the Olympic Bass Institute, you know, up on world stages and things. Uh, yeah, I saw, you see stuff, stuff coming back and it's given, um, but usually with a new name, but it's still the old. Probably you haven't had it yet in B2B, but in B2C, there's this thing of uh, attention, right? And of course we don't, of course we want attention, you know, we want our, uh, our advertising to be seen. Yeah. But to pay for lots more attention gets incredibly expensive and you don't necessarily need it. You know, we have to pull and realize, yeah, most of the people are going to see our ad and look at it for a few seconds. Yeah, okay, so make the ad until they can understand it in a few seconds. Don't go, oh, no, I need to try to find a place where I can get, you know, them to watch for three minutes. It's not going to happen. Mm. Um, so, I don't know, 20 years ago, it was called engagement. Now they're calling it intention, but it's the same thing. So we see things like that. I mean, there's a lot. I could probably, you know, we could spend another hour going through some of the misguided stuff that comes up. Wonderful. Uh, I'll do one last question and I'll, then I'll, I'll let you go. How important is ensuring a consumer understands, remembers your product's value proposition in order to maintain or grow uh, mental availability? Well, I think if they're bought from you, they'll know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But what you have to do is make it easy for them. To, this is a great problem that small brands have. That they often, you know, they, they do something like, you know, serendipity, they go to a trade show or they have a, and they get a sale. Great. But they don't get the repeats that they should because people have forgotten about you. It's like if, uh, look, I often use this example of like, have you ever been to a small restaurant and you loved it, food was great, value proposition was wonderful, but you've never been back. Like, well, you know, oh, well, I forget. Actually, uh, it, I don't know what their name is. I can't exactly remember what suburb, you know. Now, you're never going to do that with McDonald's, right? No. And it's the difference in mental and physical availability. So for a small brand, you've got to go, okay, how do I make sure that people... You see, you see this with people... That's why sampling doesn't actually work that well. You'd, be, you'd, you'd think like you know, paying people to stand at a railway station and giving out, I don't know, pots of yogurt. Well, that'd be really good. People take the yogurt, they'll eat us, and they'll, 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 they'll love it, and they'll remember us forever. No, it doesn't. People take the yogurt, they eat it, and... Yeah. <laughs> what what yeah. yogurt that? The railway station one. I ran by such a one in the weekend, I remember. I can't remember the name of it, but it was I like a yogurt drink. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, marketing is a, is a harder business. We have to work really hard, even when we've done that. Even someone has bought from us. So we, we should do follow-up, and we should remind people about that we have other products yeah. uh, that there are other ways that they can buy us all right brian we're almost out of time but i was let's if you feel like it writing at replies you can go there and spend an, an extra hour but one person did ask in the comments is there any new books uh, coming up from you guys that are worth paying attention to well, our big new product is uh, our brand's grow for executives. So if you want to, if you want to come and see me and um, Jenny Robinac will be there. It's going to be amazing events. I would do that. Uh, the last book that we released was Jenny's Better Brand Tracking. Better Brand Tracking. Yeah. Well, uh, so that's you know there are quite a few books, and I'm sure you, most people haven't read the university textbook that we have. So uh, mm. reading there if, 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 if you want that. Yeah, um, and then, uh, yeah. But uh, sometimes, it's what, why do we do How Brands Grow Live for Uber, for our sponsors? Why do we do It's because sometimes you do need to spend a couple of days asking questions and doing practical exercise and working through what it, what it means. Um, you can, yeah. I mean, I'd like to think the book is great. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, I don't think anyone learned to be a plumber by, you know, reading a book on plumbing. No, I mean, a book on plumbing is useful, but you do have to do a bit more than that. Yeah. And uh, then last thing, Byron, if people uh, now feel intrigued by uh, the work that you and your colleagues do, uh, how do they continue to learn more about you? Go, go to our website, go to uh, Ehrenberg Bass, just Google it. Yeah. Well, MarketingScience.info is the, is the web address, but yeah. Big web uh, and then you know, make sure to, to connect with Byron uh, as well here on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. Follow me. We, you know, we're always telling the world about the, the new stuff we do. Wonderful. Byron, I want to thank, thank you. Advertise too. Yeah. yeah. Byron, I want to really want to thank you for, for taking the time here and hopefully not just me, but a few other people learned about your work for the first time so they can come and buy your book and then later on uh, go to your courses as well. But uh, yeah, I would just want to say thank you for spending the, your time with us. And uh, yeah, really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you. It's, it's good and everyone uh, online, go, go to work now and have, a, have another coffee. We hope you like listening to us. Subscribe to our podcast 
and the ones that we have been guests on. And if you have any feedback for us, uh, just do let us know. And should there be a guest that you think we should be talking to, then like pitch us. We're looking forward to seeing you.